Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Getting Sexy with Steph. And today I have the absolutely amazing Kate Carson, love, sex, and relationship coach at Nightbloom Coaching. She is a mother to three daughters, two living and one stillborn. She runs a Facebook group for womb grief called Through the Fire. And today we are going to have a really beautiful intimate conversation. And I want to start off with just like a slight trigger warning that we will be talking about losses of babies and miscarriages today. So if this is something that feels fresh or you would like a little bit of extra resource or you want to listen to when you're cozy and you've got your cup of tea and you feel really grounded, just wanted to give a little bit of a trigger warning to any of our mamas out there that will be listening to this podcast today. So hello, Kate. I am so deeply honored to have you here today. And I was just telling Kate right before we got started, how much I honor this work that she does. It's so needed and it's so beautiful. And I really can't wait to really get intimate into this conversation and for everybody to hear the knowledge that you have. Thank you so much, Steph. It's so good to be here. And I love any opportunity to share and reach out and connect because I remember how lonely it was for me when I was going through pregnancy losses and how, how important it was for me when people stepped up and said, oh, me too. Mm, I love that. Um, if it feels okay, I would love if you could give our listeners just a little bit of a background of who you are and how you came into this work and then actually the work that you do do because it's so intimate and special. And like you said, it gives women a place to step up and say, yeah, I'm not alone. Me too. Like somebody else has gone through this at a time that actually feels like it can be very isolating. Totally. So what got me into grief work um, was grief, of course. I, my middle daughter was, um, well, we lost her. So when my first daughter was two and a half, I was trying to get pregnant again. And I actually had three miscarriages in a row until I finally got pregnant again with a pregnancy that stuck. And that whole pregnancy, people would, not just people, my, my medical team would say, everything looks great. And I was so sick. And they were like, that's such good news because it means you're not having a miscarriage, which is debatable, but that's what they would tell me. And it wasn't until the very end of the pregnancy when they discovered that she had catastrophic brain anomalies. She had a couple of diagnoses, including a genesis of the corpus callosum, which means the bridge between the hemispheres doesn't form, and also dandy walker malformation, which means it's a constellation of other brain anomalies. And her prognosis was very, very poor. I only discovered this when I was 35 weeks pregnant. And at that point, uh, when I was trying to explore my options and figure out what life would look like for her, the prognosis she got was, in my mind, a fate worse than death. Now, that is going to be very subjective and it's going to be very values-based and many different people have many different ideas about it. But for me in that moment, when the doctor was telling me all of the things she wouldn't do, and I said to the doctor, you know, she won't walk or talk or sit up or swallow. What can she do? Can she just sleep all day? And he said, he, he actually winced and he said, no, babies like yours are not often comfortable enough to sleep. And it was really in that moment that I knew that what I wanted for my baby 
was for her to die because what I wanted for her even more than I wanted her to live was for her to know peace for sure, like to not have to um, risk the life that they were telling me she might have. And um, because of that, I saw an abortion in my last trimester of pregnancy. I had to go from Boston to Colorado and it was a four day procedure. I had very good care in Colorado, but it was still a very scary thing to leave home and leave my baby, my, my child, my toddler with my parents and have to go and have this pregnancy loss so far away is really compounded the shame and the loneliness of the loss experience. Um, at that stage of pregnancy and abortion is a stillbirth, you induce a stillbirth. So I euthanized my baby in my womb with an injection. And then two days later, we induce labor and I, I birthed my baby at the clinic. Um, I then had to get on an airplane the next morning and fly home. So this was a very intense week of my life and it was hugely tragic. I mean, I still love my baby. It's 10 years on, it's a decade on, and I still love and miss my little Laurel who I left in Colorado. Her body was um, returned to me. Her remains were returned to me through the mail eventually. And it's just another layer in this like bizarre world of getting caught out of, out of the legal medical system of your state. So that was my loss. And from there, I had both the mother's grief journey of my, my baby dying and also the personal identity crisis of, I love my baby with every cell in my being. And of course I want her here. And also I chose to let her go. So the abortion piece was a really big deal. And because abortion in the third trimester has become a political wedge, um, it basically, I, I sought support for myself and in support group, I ended up getting the most out of supporting other people. So I'm still a support group space holder at ending a wanted pregnancy a decade later. And I'm an admin of the group now. Um, that's a place if anyone else has gone through a termination for medical reasons, you can find that by Googling ending a wanted pregnancy. Um, and through the website, you can submit an application to get into that support group. But in addition to that, just because of the how fraught it was, with the abortion piece and the political piece, I'm also an activist, specifically for abortion in the third trimester. It's a topic that isn't very well understood by anyone who hasn't been through it or isn't very closely connected to it. And so I see myself as a storyteller and I really see my deeper mission in that work as busting taboo around abortion in general and abortion at later terms in particular. Um, so out of that work, I came to coaching. All of that is volunteer and it's ongoing and I'm still doing it. But over the past year or two, I've been training up as a love, sex and relationship coach. And all through this time of training, every time we learn a new tool or um, I'm working with a client and I see the power of these tools, I've just always wanted to bring it home to my baby loss mamas, you know, because you think about love, grief is just love. So if you're really suffering in grief, it's because you hold massive amounts of love. And that grief can hurt a lot at first, but it doesn't have to hurt forever in the way it does when it's raw. So I love to help people integrate their grief. I love to be there for them when they're in those acute stages. And then you think, well, relationship, this puts an enormous strain on a marriage because when a couple, or not just a marriage, any relationship, if a couple loses a baby together, it feels like, oh, 
well, they should grieve together. That feels like it's correct and true. And it's sort of what we're told in our culture should happen, but it's just not realistically true. Grief is just very lonely and very personal. And what happens more often than not is the partners grieve differently and have almost opposite, polar opposite needs. And they just can't show up for each other because they're both dealing with their own, right? And that feels so lonely. And it's like a whole nother pot, it like opens up a whole world of, oh, I might lose my relationship as well, right? That is so painful. And some relationships don't make it, some shouldn't make it, but others can make it. And if you are trying to make it to know how normal the pain you're in is, the distance, how normal that is, that can really help. So I love to hold couples through this as well. And then sexuality, people might be like, well, what does that have to do with baby loss? And the answer is everything. First of all, babies are made in your reproductive system, right? The act of sex is what initiates a baby or it doesn't. And then you are infertile and then you have to go get IVF. And that in and of itself is a grief journey, right? In and of itself, infertility journeys are like loss almost like a fog of loss that doesn't lift. It's not like a concrete loss like mine. It's like this just like soup of loss you're swimming in. Um, and so whether or not you conceive your baby by sex, sexuality is tied in and the body is so tied in. The loss of a baby is a visceral loss. The loss of a baby because you lost your opportunity because you aged out before you ever had a chance, that's still a visceral loss because it's like a ghost of an idea that happened in your body. So it's tied to the body and the body is where we have sex, right? There's this really common phenomenon where a lot of women will punish the body after a loss like mine. They'll be like, you know, I went through it. I, I remember walking around and just thinking to myself, to, to my body, you built a broken baby. You built a broken baby. And that there are many, many levels on which that's not true. And I know it's not true, um, you know, it isn't quite fair to call my baby a broken baby, but there was a level of me that said that believed that and believed it was my body's fault. And I remember just wishing I could unzip my body and float away. Like that's how dissociated I was from my body. And it was really imperative to my healing. At some point I realized I didn't know how to mend a broken heart and I didn't know how to heal my soul but I knew how to care for my body. I knew how to come home for my body. I knew how to like touch my body kindly and how to feed my body well and how to move my body in the sunlight and fresh air, right? So it was really through basics like that that brought me home to my body. And sex played a huge role. Um, my husband and I had a lot of trouble talking about our loss, but we were able to touch each other and just be with each other and have intimacy, whether it be cuddling or whether it be sex, that was available to us. Many of the women I work with, it's not because the fear is so high. What if I get pregnant again? What if I don't get pregnant again, right? There can be birth injuries from pregnancy losses, you know, and a birth injury changes sex as well. So sexuality is also really tied up with this world. And it's just such an honor to be able to, to bring this kind of support to women who are grieving a loss or a baby they never got to have at all. I rarely feel um, like speechless 
but there's such a deep reverence and like bowing and honor towards you, sister, for standing up and sharing your story so intimately, so lovingly. And, you know, I heard you mention that you really feel that part of your journey is this storyteller and just the way that you relate and the things that you say are so truthful and things that so many women feel, but it feels like it's taboo for them to actually say out loud because they're just supposed to bounce back. You know, it happens to everybody. It's not, you're not, you know, special. This isn't. And so to hear these words that you're saying, I feel can help others to really not feel so lonely in a time when, as you've mentioned, it, it is such a lonely experience. Totally. And when you say that, it reminds me of my first miscarriage, which was um, 13 weeks. So it was a lot earlier than my, than my loss of Laurel. I, I did not name that baby. And I just remember it, but it was my, my first loss and feeling like just gobsmacked. And I went to a friend's party and I sat down with someone I had never met before. And I can't remember which one of us said it first, but she, she asked me how I was doing or something. I said, well, you know, I'm actually going through a miscarriage right now. And she leaned in and she said, no way, me too. And we were both, that's how we became friends is that we were both miscarrying babies at a party. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we weren't, it wasn't like the active part. It was in that case, I, it wouldn't move. It was, we call it mis miscarriage. I had to go in and, and get a surgery to remove my pregnancy from my body. But so it was in that zone of waiting to see what would happen. But I just thought that was like, yeah, that everyone's going around and not everyone has had this loss. But if you take under the umbrella of everything I consider womb grief, which includes miscarriage, it includes infertility, it includes abortion, whether or not it was an abortion of a wanted pregnancy or whether the pregnancy itself was untenable just because it was a pregnancy. Um, it includes um, missed opportunity motherhood, which I've mentioned, which is one that doesn't really get much recognition anywhere. Um, and all of these things and more, if I didn't name your type of womb loss, but you, oh, hysterectomy is, is a womb grief, right? You can lose body parts that are associated and that's a womb grief. Um, so all of these and more fall under the umbrella of womb grief. And if you start counting them all up, like, I think it would be much more common than not for women of a certain age to have experienced this. Like if you ask your grandmothers, if we all went and asked our grandmothers, I bet nearly all of them would have experienced it in one form or another. Yes, I agree. And that is why this work is so important that you do with womb grief, because it really does affect so many women. And yet I feel it really is still blank. There's like a blanket under it. It's like, don't look under the blanket, you know, don't see what's actually happening in the body, especially don't look at like sex and don't right. look at how it actually affects a relationship. And yeah. I love the three different areas that you talked about. Um, and the first one in being the body. Mm -hmm. And so 
I'm really curious because it sounds like you have some really beautiful tools that worked for you. And I can just feel even some of our listeners being like, how did she reconnect with her body like that? Because it's such a disconnection that can happen. And even as you said, this like dissociation. Mm -hmm. And so what are some really simple things that may seem simple, but have a very profound effect that maybe somebody going through this grief and this loss, or even is in like the heart of it right now, what are some things that you would recommend or would consider to be useful for somebody to do just to start to feel back into that sacredness of like, Oh, I have a body. Yeah. This is my body. I'm connected to my body and my body's not broken. Yes. So the first thing is to honor the body. If every, if anything I suggest is not in alignment with what your body wants, your body wins. No expert is more (laughs) fluid in your body than your body is. So that's the very first place to start from is a commitment to actually care enough to listen to the body. Um, And so if the body wants deep rest, even though you feel like you should be getting up and getting back to work, I mean, you might need to work to keep a roof over your head. And if you do, it's so hard, but I understand that you might override your body sometimes. But if you have the time and space to rest and your body's saying rest, rather than judge judge it as like, oh, I should do this, I should do that, rest. Um, Something that helped me a lot was Every single day, I remember my early grief days, the fog of it, I would just, to make it through the day, I made my day routine, I would get up, I would care for my two-year-old till the point that we could get out of the house. We would walk to the playground, that was tough because of all the other pregnant women there. We would walk to the grocery store, I would buy her lunch at the grocery store, and I would buy ingredients to make a healthy dinner. And I would come home, and I would make a healthy dinner, and as soon as we ate it, I would go to bed because I was just living for sleep, you know? And what was beautiful about that was both the routine, but that my whole day was centering around, I'm going to nourish my body with food. And it doesn't, I don't wanna suggest that you do restrictive diets of any kind. I, I suggest that you really feel in and they're like, okay, I know vegetables are good for my body. What vegetable would feel good to add to this meal? It just adding, just giving yourself more, you know? And if what you want is an ice cream sundae, by all means, add the ice cream sundae after the dinner, right? Like give yourself more. I have a very good friend in grief space and she says, sometimes the kind thing to do is to have the ice cream sundae. And sometimes the kind thing to do is not to. And if you listen into your body and respond to your body, you'll know. Then the eating of the food, the present moment eating, it's a really good warm up to pleasure. Food is a beautiful precursor to sexual pleasure. If sex feels totally ridiculously like terrifying and not within the realm of possibility right now, begin to introduce yourself to other bodily pleasures. For example, food that you love, eaten slowly, enjoyed every step of the way. For example, lying in the sunshine and just letting yourself feel warm, right? Whatever is sensory love to you, indulge in it. Another thing that helped me was sprinting. And I am not a runner, 
But every morning I would get out of bed, I would put on my sneakers, I wouldn't do, I would just like pee and go. And I would run sprints across a field. And my body just needed to do that. And I now I know about the fight or flight and freeze fawn responses. I think that my body was processing some of my trauma, wanting to run. It was also this very much more healthy way when I had punishing impulses to my body to be like, I'm just going to run till it hurts. Felt like an okay way to express that. An alternative could be to dance your feelings, right? But just movement, days that I did that, and then I would just sit and cry. <laughs> so I would run, 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 run. <laughs> and then I would just sit in the field and cry. Days that I did that, I was still freaking sad, but it had a very different quality than the deep, dark depths of despair that I felt at other times. Now, when it comes to sexual pleasure and reintroducing yourself to sex, that is so personal for me, as I mentioned, because words were not happening for me and my husband. We were not able to talk to each other in a way that's actually sort of extreme. So I was fortunate to be able to have physical touch be something that felt gratifying to me right away. Um, of course, you've just had a birth, so check with your doctor and make sure you're cleared for, for penetration. But even if you're not, touch itself, massage, foot rubs, kisses, right? If you can find a form of touch that feels safe and good with your partner, indulge in that. And if you can find the words to talk about it, put a limitation on it. Like, we're just going to do foot rubs tonight, but we're going to do foot rubs tonight. So it's devotional it's kind and it has a limit on it so it doesn't feel like anything is owed or it has to escalate. If that feels like too much, touching your own body. You know, there's a practice called Abhyanga where you, you rub oil into the skin over your whole body and then you get in and shower and wash it off. That would be a beautiful way. And if that feels too much, just the feet. Another tough thing about this loss for me, at least in my body was that I was lactating after. So showering was sort of off for a while. I couldn't do it because it would make me spray milk and it was just too emotionally painful to create milk. So just rubbing the feet with oil would be an alternative if you can't do it. Um, when you are past the lactation point, breast massage is another beautiful way to just get back in touch with your body. The breast massage should be done from a place of, I have love, I'm putting it into my hands and I'm applying the love to my breasts. They don't have to earn it. They don't have to do anything. I'm just like putting the love on my breasts. And that has been a very powerful practice for me. Love all of these so much. And thank you for giving so many different, uh, ver like the whole spectrum, right? Of start here. You get to start small if you want, even just like holding your feet or your partner's feet in connection. I think that it's so beautiful to have, you know, every step along the way honored as you really do drop back into your body and start to feel that pleasure. And I say the word pleasure, whenever I say the word pleasure, I often feel like people immediately go towards sex, sex equals pleasure. And it's something that's so wrong and skewed from, you know, just conditioning as I really look at pleasure as a sensory experience. And so just as you said, laying in the grass and feeling the sun on your skin is pleasure or being held or touching your own skin. That's 
pleasure. And it's, it's so deeply healing to look at pleasure in that way. And it really is a gateway back into embodiment. Totally. And I hear you on the running. Um, I think that movement is some of the greatest medicine that we, that we can have ever. And, and it can be anything from dancing to full out sprinting till you fall and cry, which (laughs) in my own ways I have experienced. (laughs) So thank you for, for mentioning that as well. And I'm curious, so that's helping to kind of get back into the body. And you did mention a few things that you could do with your partner um, around just finding some sort of intimacy outside of sex, or if sex is cleared medically and feels safe and feels good to both people, that's, you know, something that you can explore as well. Is there anything else that you have ideas that you could recommend for how maybe to start, um, holding your relationship, like coming together? Because like you said, grief is so individual And the grief cycle is so different for everybody. Like one person might be at like sadness one day and the other person might be in denial or rage. And maybe one person's feeling some of that acceptance. And so it's really difficult to sync those cycles. It is so individual. So what are maybe just a few different tools in connecting? I love the idea of the foot rubs. Like this is what we're going to do today. Um, all the way up to sex. And is there anything else that just like, as I say, that kind of pops in your mind, like, Oh, try this. Well, one of the most common pieces of advice that I give in support space every week, I give this advice every week because someone needs it at least every week, if not every day is when you feel sort of triggered by your partner's reaction. So we're not always our best selves. In fact, like we're definitely not our highest selves when we're grieving. And there is so much good reason for that, right? Grief is inherently self-centered and it has to be. So if you're feeling selfish or your partner's acting selfish, I don't want you to judge that. That's your survival, right? Grief makes you self-centered so that you can care for yourself enough to actually get out the other side of the very darkest days. And So, but because of that, it really helps to realize that both you and your partner may have blinders on. So just to know that, and then to forgive yourself for that. And if you can forgive yourself for that, forgiving your partner for it becomes much easier. The big thing that helped me in my marriage at the times, because there were times when I really didn't think we were going to make it, right? There were times when, especially when I started getting into activism, my husband and I did not agree on telling the story publicly. I thought that I would die if I didn't. And he thought that he would die if I, he didn't say it that way, but like, it felt like he, he, it felt like a real safety issue to him that he wanted to keep it private. And we're very different that way. I'm a, I'm a person who likes to be visible and he's a person who likes to be private and they are both valid and worthy. But there were times when he would tell me that my story sharing or even just telling a best friend about what happened was, um, he would would use the word betrayal. And that just cut me so deep at a time when I really wanted to feel connected to him. But the thing that finally helped me feel like we were on the same team again is loving myself so much that 
I loved and respected my grief completely. One of the arguments we would get in a lot was that he would, he would look at me and he would seem afraid that I would stay like this forever. I was not a high functioning griever. I was a low functioning griever. I was a person who slept a lot and did very little, right? <laughs> Making that dinner was all I could do in a day. Um, I did, I did not take a job for a year uh, and I was lucky. I took a few hours of work, but not a full-time job. Whereas my husband kept going to work. And it was when I was in a support group for, for baby loss that some woman had actually like dragged her husband there. My husband would never in a million years come with me to a support group. And I felt that that was not supporting me, but this woman dragged her husband and thank goodness she did because he said, he said, you know, we can either grieve with a roof over our heads or we can grieve in a shack in the woods, <laughs> you know, like in a leaky. <laughs> and he's like, I'm trying to make sure you can grieve in a house with a roof over your head. And I was like, oh, that my husband is going to work is a devotional act for our family. It's not him not caring that our baby died. And when I could open up that much to be like, so that means his grief is totally valid and I don't understand it. He doesn't want to talk about it. He won't tell me anything about it. Every time I say my, our baby's name, we get in a fight. I don't get it. But I believe that he cares about our daughter, that he cares about me, and that he's grieving in his own way. And I trust him to do that. And I believe that I'm a hot mess. And that is right for me. I believe that I love our daughter and I love, I love my husband and I love my family. And it's okay that I have trouble getting out of bed in the morning. We're both doing it right for us. And I don't get it. And I might never get it. But I trust that he's a good man and is doing this right for him. That, that was a turning point for me. Part of what it meant was that instead of always grasping for my husband, I need to talk about Laurel. I need to talk about Laurel. He could not talk about Laurel. He could not hear about Laurel. And he could not see my pain, right? I had to learn how, I call it casting a wider net. I had to learn how to call on the help of dozens of friends to bear the support that I needed. And I had to learn how to ask very specifically for what would help me because people do not inherently know what you need when you are grieving. And any two people might need the opposite thing, just as I needed to talk about my baby and my husband needed not to talk about our baby. So I started calling friends. You know, when someone dies, Everyone goes, oh, if there's anything I could do. And it just feels like, <laughs> right? It just sort of falls, yeah. it falls flat. I started calling people who had said that to me and being like, you know what? I know it's like two months later, but there is something you could do. They loved that. It's a gift to someone. It's a gift to anyone who loves you to tell them what would help. And it's important to tell a lot of people one thing each that would help because what you get is the support that you need. And you get it from a bunch of different directions. Everyone's happy to show up because you've given everyone a bite-sized piece. And when they come and they show up, what I found was, even though my first choice person in the whole world for support was my husband and he could not do it, he was at a zero, right? <laughs> when I started getting what I needed met from all of my friends and extended family, I could relax. My needs were met. It didn't matter that my husband couldn't meet them and I could have compassion for him and compassion for me. And that is what saved our marriage. So trusting, 
each other, trusting his, his love and grief, trusting my love and grief, and casting a wide net, learning how to ask specifically for what I need to get my needs met. That is so beautiful. That is so, so beautiful. And I really love this idea of casting a wide net because I feel as women, it's like you, you know, it it does feel hard to ask for what you need. And it feels so much more digestible to say, I'm going to ask one thing from this Mm -hmm. one person. And you're right. People actually do love to show up. And it's like, if you give them one it's raining back up. You have one job. (laughs) It's like, you have one job. Can you do this for me? When they get to do that one thing that really supports you and to be able to have that from community and from family and from friendships and have people show up, I can imagine how that actually intensifies the trust that a, you have in yourself B, you have in your partner and C, you have in the relationship as a whole. Yes, totally. Totally. I I really don't think relationships can survive without friends. I know mine, I shouldn't generalize because not every relationship is my relationship, but I know for sure that having a lot of friends is very supportive of my relationship. So I'm curious because there's a lot of people out there that even that might feel scary. Like I'm going to ask somebody for one thing. Totally terrifying. I mean, that's absolutely fucking terrifying to even think of like, I'm going to call my best friend in the world and see if she can do one thing when it's like in your heart, you know, and you know, you would show up for them. Totally. But what is something that maybe like just some ideas, like if you were just to like rattle off like three or four ideas of something that somebody that you could ask somebody to help with, because I also feel like sometimes when you're in grief, you actually maybe don't even know what the hell you need because you're just, you're like, I'm in survival mode. So what are some things that are really small that when you're in this depth of grief, or maybe you're having like one of the days where it's really just like, you feel like you're drowning in the ocean. What are a few things that you could ask? Just like that one little thing. You could ask maybe multiple people. I can say some of the things I asked for. Yeah. They may or may not fit for people, but it will give you sort of a structure of the scale of size of things I'm asking. So first of all, I just want to say it was an identity transformation for me because I had always been the giver. So to ask, it's like, well, grief does this to you anyway, but it's like, who even am I anymore if I am asking for help, right? So it becomes not just like, this is hard, but also I don't even know myself. And the, I think the reason it's scary is that if I ask someone for a bite-sized piece of support and they don't show up, what would that mean, right? So it, it's risking the friendship. To be this vulnerable is risking the friendship. And to do it in a vulnerable way is really necessary to it working. If you want someone to actually deliver the support, it is necessary to ask in the most vulnerable way that you can, um, which is hard because it's showing it's showing how bad things are. So I asked, I remember asking one friend, can you please come take a walk with me on Wednesday? And I, I remember saying specifically, like, I have no idea what I'm going to be like on Wednesday, but will you just walk with me outside in the woods anyway. And she was like, of course. 
I remember asking another friend, would you please call me every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m.? And I may or may not pick up the phone, but just for the next few months, could you just call me every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m.? And like, it doesn't matter if I pick up the phone, but just knowing that's coming. Um, that's a bigger one because that's a commitment. I remember asking someone, um, I guess we could use a meal. Like I, I would love a meal, right? And they drop food. Uh, oh, this was huge. I, I called I called my best friend from, from childhood when, when I started storytelling live. And I knew that I couldn't ask my husband to come because he it would be too, we couldn't talk about it. And I called my best friend and I said, would you come with me when I go and speak in front of this group of lawyers? And she did, She that was huge. Um, my mom came with me to an ultrasound in the next pregnancy. Mom, Evan can't come, can you please come? And, be with me so I don't have to be alone. Uh, oh, there was one more good one and I forgot it, but this is the scale of things we're talking about is just like, oh, I know what it is. So asking people, if you want the smallest hanging fruit for me, please speak my baby's name. Don't worry about me for, don't worry about reminding me that my baby died because I never forget it. Please talk about Laurel. Please ask me about Laurel. And then I gave one friend the task of, can you put her birthday in your calendar? And can you write me a card on her birthday? Oh, I have full body chills because I feel like that is the medicine that, that women just needed to hear. Yeah. And those are the things that, you know, for anybody listening, maybe who, who, even the ones who say, how can I help? They can say, Hey, can I call you every Tuesday for the next four weeks? And you don't need to pick up, but just know I'm there. So I feel like this actually is very beneficial for both because it gives somebody ideas of what to ask for. And it gives the friends and the family who know that there's this grief happening, tangible things that may or may not, you know, be applicable, but just some really beautiful ideas. So I really love that. Thank you. Another one is just coming up. This was hugely important to me. I, I assigned certain people in different circles. Would you please spread the word that this happened? Mm -hmm. Like one neighbor, I said, would you please go up and down the street and tell our, our neighbors that we lost the baby? Because, oh, it's so hard. Everyone was expecting this baby. I was quite visibly pregnant. It's so hard to have to say that over and over and over again. And I call it protective gossip, where if, if, it's give, if you give permission to share the vocabulary you want within the boundaries of information that feels good to you, to the community that feels good to you, that can be, it can be such a weight off to know that like, okay, this one friend is going to call my college friends and I'm not going to have to call them individually. Right. Yeah. I actually really, really love that. I did the same thing when I got divorced, which is a way that I, I held that grief is I assigned certain people to just spread the news. So you didn't have to talk about it to every single person. So I think that that is such a beautiful, right. beautiful practice as well. So wise. Mm, I love it. All right. I am 
so curious. And I know everybody listening that has listened all the way through are probably just like, how do I get into your space? How do I get into these support groups? How do I work with this amazing queen? How do I get in touch with you? So can you share just, excuse me, a couple of ways that people can find you and how they can work with you? And I will also put all of these in the podcast notes. Absolutely. I have a bunch of places I work. So (laughs) (laughs) the best, the best way, like direct line to me all the time is through my website, which is night bloom coaching, all one word night N I G H T B L O M coaching.com. And I have a, um, a blog there. If you just want to read my thoughts and that is where you can either see about groups that I do sometimes, or, um, like group coaching calls or work with me one-on-one then Another good place to just be a part of, it's a young community, so it's pretty quiet right now, but I'm hoping that it will grow, is um, Through the Fire is my Facebook group. So if you look for Through the Fire, it's got like a a red flower and and you can join in there. A couple of questions, you do have to answer the questions just so I make sure you're in the right place before you get in. Um, then if you have experienced termination for medical reasons, I would recommend going to endingawantedpregnancy.com and you can just fill out a form and that is beautiful free support space there. Um, and I also do activism with a bunch of organizations and I, I guess I'll, I'll just update my website when I'm published at more places if you want to read what I have to say about the, the status quo of the situation. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Everybody go find Kate, especially if this resonated with you. She's such a sacred space holder and so wise with working with all forms of womb grief. And we are just so blessed to have you stand up and share your story so powerfully and so vulnerably and putting yourself out there and for all of the activism work that you do and for being an advocate for women to gather around this instead of feel lonely. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for the work that you do. And you are just the most beautiful out in medicine that this, this world needs, especially around grief and womb healing and everything. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for giving everyone out there who needs to hear this a chance to hear it. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in today. And we will see you at our next episode. Mwah!